Hey everyone, and welcome back again to House Wine. I am the host. My name is Rachel. I'm sitting in my little pillow fort in Toronto, and we're going to talk again about Argentina today. Uh, this is a episode I think I will just aptly dub the rest of Argentina, because last week we did all of Mendoza. Uh, Mendoza is very important. Mendoza makes most of the wine in Argentina. But this week, we're just going to talk about everything else that they do. So like I said, last week, we went over uh, the history of Argentina. And we talked about, like I said, the region that everyone knows that pretty much everyone loves the region that makes up the bulk Mendoza. And the populator Mendoza is really one of those uh, six, like wine industry success stories. It went from being this region uh, that was making bulk wine, like kind of plonk wine, to this internationally acclaimed region attracting winemakers from Napa, Bordeaux, all within the span of 20 years. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Prosecco in that way, like where they find, <laughs> where they were fine, but not great. And then through an effective marketing campaign, they really became one of the most popular wines in the world, basically overnight, because 10 years is overnight in the wine world. And if you're listening to this show, it's because uh, you like wine. And I think I said this last week, I can guarantee that you in your life have had a Malbec from Mendoza. But what about the rest of Argentina, you say? It's a huge country. It's massive. There's got to be more wine there. And so there is. And we will talk about it today. There's a whole rest of the country. Uh, they're making wine. And very often, the only wine that we ever see in the North American market, or at least the Canadian market, uh, are those Mendoza wines. But there are gems, and you can find them, and they are delicious. So last week, even though uh, we talked about how Malbec is native to France, not Argentina, uh, many people associate Malbec as being from Argentina. For all intents and purposes, the Malbec grape has sort of made Argentina its home. And that's the truth. But I also talked a little bit about Argentina or how Argentina has kind of an above average amount of grapes that are indigenous to Argentina that are crossings that come or came from come from there. It's one of the few places in the world where the native grapes have been so successful commercially and critically that there are even producers in the old world in places like Spain and Portugal that are growing some of these native grapes that originated in Argentina. It's really not often that you see a grape come from a place in the new world like Argentina or Australia or South Africa and then be so popular that people in Spain start growing it. It's just not it's just not really a thing. So right there we know Argentina has some some cred, some cred, some wine cred. So the first other, quote unquote, other place that we're going to talk about in the other regions of Argentina is way up north, and that is Salta. Salta is in the north region, which, as I think you believe, is the northernmost winemaking region in Argentina. It's also the place in the world where they boast the highest elevation vineyards anywhere. And there are four IGs that make up the North region. They are Jujuy, Jujuy, 
Okay, get uh, sit back, get ready. I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher a bunch of words today. Jujui, J U J U Y, Tucuman, Catamarca, and Salta, which is uh, pretty much the most famous. The first two, Jujui and Tucuman, are still kind of up and coming. They are making wine there, but they are mostly for the production of cheaper domestic wines and grape spirits. Though, due to the recent explosion of popularity in Salta and Catamarca, there is a little bit more interest in these kind of lesser-known wine regions. But the star here, uh, the gem, really is Salta. In Salta, S-A-L-T-A, they grow a very specific grape called Torrantes. And sometimes you will hear this called Torrantes Rio... Oh my gosh, here we go. Riojano. I'm (laughs) trying to pronounce the J as an H because I took many years of Spanish in university, so you'd think I would know this and you'd think I'd be better, but it's called Torrantes Riojano. That's T-O-R-R-O-N-T-E-S and Riojano, R-I-O-J-A-N-O. And it is the indigenous grape of Argentina. In fact, it is probably one of the most successful grapes to be 100% from the New World. Torrantes is originally a crossing between Muscat of Alexandria, which we have talked about before, that world traveling grape that has basically been everywhere. You know, if um, if Muscat of Alexandria had an Instagram page, it would be way cooler than yours. And absolutely way cooler than mine if you've ever (laughs) ventured onto my Instagram. Uh, It would be like an influencer grape that's like hanging off the side of a waterfall in Chile. And then, you know, the next post, it would be like lounging in Santorini. Um, I digress. But a crossing of Muscat of Alexandria and a crossing of Listan Preto, uh, which we know in Argentina has many different names. They love to call Listan Preto that grape from the Canary Islands, Criola Chica here. Uh, but they also, the original name for it is Mission because it's sort of the first grape of the Americas that they brought over with all the missionaries. Now, there are grapes that are called Torrantes in Spain and in Portugal, uh, but they have done DNA testing and we know that these grapes are not, in fact, the same as the Torrantes that grows in Argentina. Torrantes Riojano, Riojano, is a grape in and of its own, uh, and there's no definitive proof that it didn't come from Spain, though it appears that most likely it is indeed native to Argentina. A great source of national pride, as this grape has become pretty famous, and like I said, so much so that it has come back full circle, and even though there is an indigenous grape to Spain called Torrantes, an indigenous grape in Portugal called Tarantes with an A, they are starting to grow Argentinian Torrantes Riojano there as well. And like its parents, Torrantes is a floral wine. It makes wines that are dry uh, with very lush tropical fruit notes like pineapple and guava. But the florals here are really what set this wine apart. It's full of bright flowers like peony and carnations. It really smells like perfume, but Unlike some of the wines that we see with heavy florals like Gewurztraminer and Alsace, Torrentes is always 
quite light-bodied by comparison, and it is always made dry, or not always made dry, but the table wine styles of it will usually be made dry. I think that this is probably a good time to talk about the effect that elevation has on fruit, because basically everything that's made in Salta is grown at elevation. There are certain places in the world where grapes uh, get exposed to more UV light. And this is uh, for a host of different reasons. In Australia and New Zealand, for example, the thin ozone layer contributes to the fact that grapes that are grown there often see a little bit more UV light. And in Argentina, the high elevation growing makes it so that these grapes will see much more UV light than grapes that are grown closer to sea level. UV light ripening the grapes will have an effect on the way the wines taste. A grape that is grown with higher light exposure will have a different fruit character than a wine that is not. The fruit profile in these wines, even though they're dry wines, tends to be more vibrant. I often refer to this myself as quote-unquote high-tone fruit, but it was actually pointed out to me very recently that uh, that may mean something to me, but it doesn't really have much context for anyone else who might be listening to me taste wine. So I recently went on a mission for myself to explain what quote-unquote high-tone fruit is. And basically, it's this. If the wine at a normal elevation would have notes of, say, lemon and lime, then the wines exposed to UV at a higher elevation still have that same citrus, but the citrus tends to taste more like key lime. Think like key lime pie or sour, tart, sweet, candied lemon peel, like limoncello or lemon drops, as opposed to just zesty lemon, if that makes sense. So though the wines are dry, they're not sweet wines, the character of the fruit in them has almost a a candiedness to it. UV light will also bring out more pronounced tropical flavors, uh, like pineapple, mango, ripe melon, gooseberry, And if this is something you think doesn't sound like it appeals to you, well, these are the flavors of some of the world's most popular wines. Think Australian Riesling, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, and yes, we can absolutely throw Torrantes into the mix here as well. And the place where they grow the most Torrantes is Salta, way tucked up in the Andes at the very northernmost region for Argentine wine growing. Inside Salta, there are four subregions. There is Cachi, Cafayate, Molinos, and San Carlos, all of which are delightfully easy to say. But of these four, (laughs) the most important and the one that you are most likely to see popping up on the label of a bottle of Torrentes is Cafayate. Along with its boastfully high altitudes, uh, this is a wine region where you find some of the most prominent winemakers. It's also a hub of tourism, which is another reason why the wine industry here has grown exponentially over the last few decades. I think I... Did I mention Colome already? I don't think I did, actually. Uh, Colome makes wine here. Uh, They make reds, but they also do make wines from Torrentes. And Colome is a really, really influential producer. They have a project with uh, Hess. Hess is a producer in Napa, and it's called Altura Maxima. It's in Cafayate, and it is the highest elevation vineyard in 
the entire world. We're going to talk about high elevation a lot this episode. But they also do make a Torrentes. They do make whites. And there's another very influential winemaker here, Susanna Balbo, who, although her winery is headquartered in Luyan de Cuyo in Mendoza, which we talked about last episode, she's known for making some of the best expressions of Torrentes from Salta that you can get. And I know that in my market, we definitely see these wines coming in regularly, but I believe no matter where you are, it would be pretty likely that you can get your hands on a bottle of wine made by Susanna Balbo. She is by far one of the most influential and critically acclaimed winemakers in Argentina right now. And because they have vineyards all over the country and make wines in huge ranges of styles, they also make a lot of it. So it's pretty easy to get your hands on. They, She even makes um, a sweet wine called Torrentes Dolce Natural, uh, which I've yet to ever try, but I think I'd be pretty interested uh, to do so, seeing as Torrentes is so closely related to Muscat of Alexandria, a wine that is really known for making some of the best sweet wines in the world. So, So that is the north region of Argentina. Uh, We talked about Cuyo last episode, given that the main thing that is happening in the whole country is Cuyo, is Mendoza. And that leaves just uh, two more geographical regions that make up the entire country in terms of winemaking. And that is the center region and Patagonia, which sometimes gets kind of lumped in and called Patagonia Atlantic region. Full disclosure here, we can just get this out of the way right now. The center region is not very important. Uh, Not only do they not grow a lot of wine here, but the grapes that they are growing are pretty much entirely not used for wine. They're mainly used to make grape spirit, uh, sometimes called aguardente or fire water. And this is the same uh, spirit that you would sort of see being used to make fortified wines. The main region here in the center region, if you ever do see wines from there, is called Cordoba. And the reason that the wineries here are at all successful is really because the town of Cordoba itself is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It has one of the oldest missionaries, like standing missionaries in Argentina, and you can go to it. I have never been, but I have read this all on the internet. And that's important because what we learn so often is that wine and tourism really go hand in hand. And if they have a tourism industry and they can grow wine there, it's usually, they usually do. <laughs> this is what I'm trying to say. It's uh, it's mostly red. It's mostly Malbec being made here. But like I mentioned already, the production is so small that for those of us who are studying wine, it's really not going to be the most talked about region. In fact, we may never really see these wines coming in the market or at least my market. It's more of a destination to have in the back of your mind if you're looking for an interesting place with both wine and history to take a vacation in. Uh, Which brings us to the last major region of Argentina, and that is the Patagonia Atlantic region. Patagonia is convenient for two reasons. They are the same reasons why it's an ideal place to grow wine. It is closest out of all Argentina's wine regions to Buenos Aires. So it has the largest commercial hub in the country, just a couple hours drive away. And furthermore, it is cooler there than really any other of the growing regions in Argentina. Though it's still a continental climate here, it's not as dry as Cuyo or the North region. So 
they have cold winters and hot summers with a really good diurnal shift, meaning that it gets cold at night during the summer, so the grapes here can keep a really good amount of their acidity. It actually sounds a lot like Canada or Canadian winemaking. When I was reading about it, I'm not going to lie, I was like, oh, that sounds like Niagara. But yeah, cold winters, warm summers, and up until pretty recently, this region would have been lumped in with the center region in terms of sort of winemaking and style. I would have pretty much just ended this episode by saying, and they make a lot of bulk wine and grape spirit there, and it's pretty much, you know, that goodbye. But slowly in the last couple of years, this has started to become a region that a lot of wine people and sommeliers are starting to look at a little more closely. And the reason for that, well, there are two reasons for that. The first reason is that wineries are able to grow grapes further and further south. And this is also true for Chile, just on the other side of the Andes Mountains, because of climate change. Places that just 20 years ago would have been considered as sort of a write-off in terms of what you could grow there are now very attractive to winemakers who may be looking to grow some grapes that enjoy a slightly cooler climate rather than the hot, arid deserts of Mendoza. The second reason is yet another elephant in the room, and that is money. (laughs) Climate change and money may not be uh, what you want to bring up at your next family dinner, but they're most definitely something that we have to consider when we're talking about why they are making wine here. And the thing is that up until pretty recently, the best way to make money in Patagonia was to make distillate. It wasn't until things warmed up that a series of foreign winemakers and wineries, many who already had projects going in Mendoza, by the way, looked south to Patagonia and kind of said to themselves, hey, maybe we could grow Pinot Noir there. And that's kind of when things really started uh, taking off in the region. Nothing kickstarts a wine industry like a bunch of French and Italians coming over with all their money and talking about terroir, Uh, which is pretty much exactly how this went down, though. I'm sure they will all tell you it was just a little bit more subtle and nuanced than that. The whole region of Patagonia is really made of the valleys of two rivers, the Colorado River in the north part of the region. And this is a tough one. This is this is a really tough one. The new Nuquen River, N-E-U-Q-U-E-N, Nuquen, I'm going to call it the Nuquen River, which is parallel to, but just south of the Colorado River. Uh, It is subdivided into three principal districts, that is Patagonia. It's divided into the district of Nuquen, named after the river, La Pampa, which sits just above the Colorado River, and then the Rio Negro, which is the southernmost of the three sub-appellations. Of these sub-appellations, Rio Negro is really the one to look out for. Though they are making some good wines in La Pampa and Nuquen, they are pretty much just sort of towing the line in terms of what's made in Argentina. So lots of Malbec and some Cabernet Sauvignon. For white, they tend to do a little bit more Chardonnay here uh, than Torrentes due to the cooler climate. But in Rio Negro is where winemakers have really begun to experiment with Pinot Noir. Rio Negro was one of the first places they ever planted wine in Argentina way back in the days of the missionaries. So there are actually quite a few old vine bottlings coming from here if you want to stick to Malbec. It is really uh, Bodega Chakra, the producer, 
that has put this region back on the international wine scene. Okay, sommeliers and wine lovers go crazy for this stuff. And it is good, but we're going to break it down. This is a very young winery, having only started in 2004. They're biodynamic, which actually really isn't a feat or that hard in a place like Argentina, where there's so little rainfall, so there's not a lot of disease pressure. When it's not raining, you're not really worried about your grapes molding because it's dry. So what really makes Chakra sort of emblematic of the change that is happening in Argentina is that it was founded by Piero Incia della Roqueta, who is the grandson of the founder of one of Tuscany's most famous and also most expensive wines, Sasakaya. It's a super Tuscan that was so successful that the government, though they were corrupt, <laughs> granted it its own appellation. And not just that, Brodega's Chakra brought in Jean-Marc Rouleau of the famed winery and winemaker namesake of Domaine Rouleau in Merceau, which is in Burgundy. I'm talking some high-level stuff right now. So uh, Domaine Rouleau in Merceau makes like really, really world-class Chardonnays, and they also make some Pinot Noirs. And now the winemaker there is making these wines for this winery, Bodega Chakra. So all to say, Chakra has some money behind it. And by some money, I mean like a lot of money behind it. But it's interesting that such a project would exist in such a place. And it just goes to show that the point I made earlier about foreign investment is indeed true. And it will be interesting to see what really comes out of Patagonia and out of this subregion Rio Negro in the next 10 years. Because usually when, you know, a really big name and a really big winemaker sets up shop there, it's like an invitation for everybody else to be like, maybe I should make wine there. So it just sort of opens the floodgate for more people, more money, more expertise to come in. And I will say this kind of to cap off Patagonia, the sort of, or, the, or the chakra talk rather. I have been very lucky to try some of the wines uh, that are made by Chakra. Not their top-tier wines, because <laughs> they're very expensive, but their mid-tier wines, uh, which are still quite expensive. These aren't these aren't your average price wines. Their top-level Pinot Noirs come in around $300 Canadian, which is a pretty high ask for a wine that is made in a region that until a couple years ago was kind of considered more of a historical curiosity more than anything. So I think what I'm trying to say is that let's keep our eyes on Patagonia. Let's keep our eyes on Bodega's Chakra and see where this goes and see how it develops. But is it worth $300 for a bottle of wine? That's a tough ask for somebody who's sitting um, in, a, in a little closet full of sheets recording a podcast. So We'll see. We'll see how it goes. There is uh, another producer there called Bodegas Noemia de Patagonia, and that's a little more affordable, but equally as rare if you can get your hands on it. These wines don't come in to the market all the time. So even though that you can, there are wines in a, in a wide range of styles here, you know, anywhere from 14 to $300, they're still not easy to get your hands on. Making Patagonia a region, like I said, that keep your eye out for it, but is it a go out and buy immediately? I, I'm i not convinced it is yet. And it's rare. 
it's ti- it's teeny tiny and it's quite rare. So it's something to keep our our eye on over here at House Wine. And by uh, we're going to keep our eye on it, I mean me. I'll be keeping my eye on Patagonia, <laughs> and I'll keep you guys updated. And besides that, well, there's a very very little small region underneath Patagonia called Chubut. Uh, but that's even further south, and while it's very small, and nothing is really happening there. So the only reason that I even like bringing up Chubut is because I like saying the word Chubut. So don't take my word for it. Maybe go out this week and look for a bottle of Patagonian wine, because I might I might be a bit of a cynic about Patagonia. Sometimes I... Sometimes I have a hard time with uh, wines that become very, very, very popular. Uh, and then you sort of build this expectation in your head and you're like, oh, yeah, it's a good wine. It's just a good wine. <laughs> it's like at the end of the day, you know, good wine is good wine. Bad wine is bad wine. But good wine is good wine. And there's actually more good wine out there than you think there is. So try everything. But if you can... Go out and try a bottle of Torrentes or try a bottle of Patagonian Chardonnay and keep exploring and keep trying new wines because that's what we're all about, learning. If you are going to go out and get yourself a bottle of delicious Argentinian wine this week, then before you do, scroll down, leave some stars, leave a comment, leave a rating, leave a review. It's the best way you can support this show and let me know uh, that you are enjoying learning with me. And next week, I think we're going to jump to something. I think we're going to I think we're going to do a lot of jumping around, guys, but we're going to do some jumping around. I think we're, I have a feeling we might be doing Madeira next week, but stay tuned. If you did notice a uh, correction or you're desperate to get a hold of me, you can email this podcast at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. And if you are looking to get a hold of me, you can look up the House Wine Podcast Instagram. It is just called House Wine Podcast. You can also look at my personal Instagram. It's Rachel Picard, R-I-C-H-A-E-L, and then Picard like the captain. And until we meet again, I think that um, that's it. All right, I'll see you next week. Bye.